This week on the Backtable Podcast. I think it's hard to find a surgical specialist that is better positioned to take care of adrenal patients than urologists. Again, our surgical expertise, our physiological understanding, but also our comfort with active surveillance, with basically leaving patients alone and not having every patient be a nail when you have a hammer. Because I think I see that happening outside of urology all the time. Adrenal mass, three centimeters, it's out. And why? Why do we just do that? If you look at administrative data sets and look at adrenal adrenalectomy complications, they're on the order of 15, 20%, which is uh, unacceptable. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Buying a home like the one I grew up in has been my dream. We had this great yard where my brother and I would run under the sprinklers. We had a big kitchen table where I told my parents I got into med school. Now I'm a member of Laurel Road for Doctors, where I got a great rate on a physician mortgage and was eligible for no money down and no PMI, so I can make new memories in my own home. Laurel Road for Doctors. Banking insights and benefits uniquely designed for doctors. See laurelroad.com slash doctorhome for full terms and conditions. Laurel Road is a brand of KeyBank NA and Equal Housing Lender. NMLS 399797. Now, back to the show. This is Aditya Bagrodia as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Alex Kudakov from Fox Chase Cancer Center, where he is the chief of urology and urologic oncology. And, you know, certainly from my perspective, I would consider Alex to be a renaissance man with both broad and deep contributions really across the urologic oncology spectrum. Alex, thrilled to have you today. How's it going? Hey, how are you? Thanks for the kind words. Uh, it's exciting. It's an honor to uh, drop some adrenal knowledge here. An important space in urology, an ever-growing space. Totally. And you know what I was kind of reflecting on this episode? I think there are certain diseases, either due to rarity or potential complexity, you know, penile, testicular, urethral, adrenal kind of fit that definition to me. And many times I feel like we kind of shy away from these diseases. Do you have any opinions on that, Alex? Oh, for sure. I mean, adrenal is especially spicy since uh, there's sort of different specialties vie for that patient volume and for that. Uh, certainly the referral patterns vary between institutions, between geographic areas. But what I would argue is there are no surgeons that know their retroperitoneum as well as urologists. There are no surgeons who understand physiology, special renal and adrenal physiology, which are really intimately linked as urologists, and this is a space that we can really contribute to. And in one way where I think we really contribute to it is that there are really very few surgeons who do as much non-surgical management of their particular space as do urologists. Because one of the main things as we'll talk about in the adrenal space is how much you can contribute to that patient population by not operating on that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think you, you touched on some, some critical points there, you know, referral patterns, looping in endocrinologists, et cetera. And the way I kind of think about it is if you know what you're doing, that kind of turns into a self-fulfilling. You're going to see the patients, you're going to get the referrals. If you're kicking things down the road, then, you know, you're, you're not going to get the patients. So in that vein, the bulk of the adrenal masses that you're seeing, Alex, are these going to be incidentally identified adrenal incidentalomas or what kind of patients are you seeing? Yeah, 
you know, the urologists, the referral to a surgeon are really masses that are found on imaging, largely incidentally. And those are in, in a urologic practice, those are all found on, you know, your CAT scans that are done for urolithiasis, for staging, for urologic cancers. You know, once you reach age 70, about 7% of scans will show an adrenal mass. And, you know, there's some data out there from health systems showing that only about 20% of those masses actually get appropriate workup. So let's, let's just maybe jump on into it. When you have a patient that is coming in with a incidentally identified adrenal mass, talk us through your thought process. You know, are you thinking about this? Like, let me just kind of review adrenal anatomy and physiology, or how do you kind of walk into this? Yeah. So the vast majority of these masses are going to be non-events, right? They're basically benign, they're non-functional, and more and more sort of societies are gelling into consensus that many of them don't need real follow-up. But it's important to sort of understand the nuances here. They're basically, you got, when you think about this, any adrenal mass that you see on imaging, you got to sort of think about it from two perspectives. One is, does it make hormones? Is it active? And two, is it likely to be cancer? Can you really determine its oncologic risk? Is this risk low or is it intermediate or is it high? And that's sort of how I think about these masses. You know, do they make stuff and are they cancer? And the vast majority of these masses don't make anything. They're metabolically silent. And the vast majority of these masses are absolutely benign. Yeah, so I think that's the first, if you have your four quadrants, you have benign versus malignant, functional versus non-functional. And if it's benign, non-functional, then I think everybody's anxiety drops massively. Is that fair? Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, the sizes of these things obviously drive the malignancy risk. And actually, you know, we'll talk about it, I'm sure in more detail, but you know, adrenal masses can get quite large without sort of having a high malignancy risk. So we you know when a renal mass gets to two and a half, three centimeters, we sort of start worrying, well, a three centimeter adrenal mass is, is actually not much to worry about. Okay. So maybe let's dig in a little bit deeper into the functional assessment, you know, starting out with the kind of questions you're going to ask the patient. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's really, you know, the, there's, you know, as, as we all remember from medical school, there's three layers to the adrenal cortex, and then there's the adrenal medulla. And these things either make cortisol, aldosterone, adrenal androgens, or catecholamines, right? And basically the main symptom that these masses from any of these regions can, you know, except for reticularis, which is the adrenal androgen, basically masses in any of these regions, they cause hypertension. Okay. So you gotta, you gotta sort of ask the patients for whether they're normotensive or hypertensive. Although even with FIOs, 15%, 1-5% of FIOs can be normotensive. So it's not, it's not a perfect indicator, but you know, with hyperaldo and for cortisol, you really, you know, those patients tend to be hypertensive. Obviously we know about Cushing syndrome and buffalo humps and strii and all those sequelae of, uh, it, you know, of cushionoid appearance. But, you know, if you're suspecting an adrenal mass being a FIO, you know, there's the classic triad of sweating, headaches, and tachycardia. About 70% of patients with FIOs have profuse sweating. Tachycardia is quite common. Again, the hypertension in, in FIOs can be paroxysmal versus, or sustained. But again, even in FIOs, 10% are completely asymptomatic. There's just incidental findings on scans. Patients are not on any meds, no, no symptoms. 
And uh, that's why a metabolic workup is uh, really mandatory for any adrenal mass that you identify. And typically, you know, for our adult population, are you seeing much in terms of the sex hormones being overproduced or is that, is that exceedingly uncommon? Exceedingly uncommon, usually clinically very obvious, really don't need to screen for it routinely. The only time I routinely check sex hormones is in patients in whom I suspect adrenal cortical carcinoma because you can use those as a tumor marker down the road. But, you know, I just had a patient with a rare, you know, rare adrenal oncocytoma, which is actually can be malignant in the adrenal. And it was estrogen producing, which is exceedingly rare. I mean, that was a super rare, but you know, you, sometimes you see referrals of women with hirsutism, you know, with an adrenal mass and, you know, honestly, the most likely cause is, you know, polycystic ovary syndrome and not that, that that adrenal mass is producing androgen. So the androgen and sex hormone producing adrenal masses are very, very rare. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I know it's kind of elementary, but I always think about the salt sugar sex that we heard about as medical students and, you know, salt, as you mentioned, is either sustained paroxysmal or paroxysmal on top of sustained hypertension, sugar, kind of Cushing's family. And then, you know, sex, of course, is the excessive production of androgens, like you mentioned, which you don't see very much. And then, you know, at the level of the medulla, the pheos. So I think, I think that's pretty much critical elements of the history of present illness as well as kind of dictating your physical exam. And then family history, is there anything you're kind of diving into when, you, when you're looking into these patients? Yeah, I mean, these are basically, again, you break it up into cortical tumors, which are from the cortex. I mean, you got these rare birds like Leifermeni syndrome, you know, the sarcoma breast, leukemia, and, and, and sort of adrenal cancer. I mean, really rare birds, usually, you know, the diagnosis already made before they come in. You know, the Speckwith-Wiedemann syndrome, you know, the kind of from pediatric urology, the Williams tumor, neuroblastoma, you know, hepatoblastoma and ACC syndrome, again, super rare, but you know, MENs, MEN1, you can have sort of bilateral adrenal tumors in, in, in MEN, I get cortical, usually adenomas and MEN2 are pheochromocytomas. And obviously the big ticket item is BHL. That's a, a familial disease that, you know, as urologists, we, we do see, you know, again, rare, but not, not too infrequently. Totally. And I mean, I think for the sake of completeness and many times they'll come along with these and if, you know, neurofibromatosis type one or, you know, familial paragangliomia, pheochromocytoma syndrome. Yeah. I kind of remember this from a adrenal lecture that Bob Uzo gave when I was a resident at UT Southwestern that there's four familial pheo syndromes that every urologist should know. And, you know, I, I guess I kind of took that to heart. Yes. Yes. It is, is DHB and, uh, you know, the NF1s there, a lot of them are extra adrenal, they're paragangliomas, which, you know, are, are, are sort of the very similar, but you know, what the one thing to know when we're talking about pheochromocytomas, you know, the nomenclature is, is pheochromocytoma is really a paragangliomas that's in the adrenal gland and a paragangliomas is an extra adrenal pheochromocytoma. And the thing to remember is that the extra adrenal paragangliomas are much more likely to be malignant. Those patients really need to be monitored for disease progression, metastatic disease, whereas uh, malignant sort of pheo that comes from the adrenals on the order of 5% incidence and up to 30% of paragangliomas can, it can uh, demonstrate metastatic disease. What's important to know is that pathology is not able to differentiate between benign and malignant uh, pheochromocytoma. This is really a clinical uh, diagnosis. You got to monitor these patients long-term to, to make sure that there's no disease progression. Perfect. Perfect. And I think that over the course of my 
career in medicine, the kind of classic 10%, 10%, 10% rule has been modified a bit. Can you comment on that? Yeah. I mean, that, that oh, it's a nice jumping off point, but yeah, I mean, these things are, nothing is 10%, you know, but it, it's still a nice, a nice sort of, uh, jumping off point for, uh, remembering, you know, 10% malignant and, you know, all those things. Yeah. And I mean, certainly I think we've learned a lot, you know, TCGA had a pheochromocytoma analysis, which really, I think took a deep dive and I'm pretty positive your all's institution contributed, you know, well with that effort. So I think we're learning more and more about the disease, which is great. So maybe Alex, as we think about the laboratory evaluation, can you kind of just run through your broad differential for incidentally discovered adrenal masses? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's where it's sort of, I started glazing over in these lectures and that's when people kind of yawn and say, I'm never going to do this in practice and, you know, things get sort of complicated. So I actually have been involved with this effort with the Global Society of Rare Genitourinary Tumors headed by Dr. Spies and Moffat. And, uh, we've put up a website where, you know, this is point of care. This is just an easy reference for anybody who's seeing an adrenal tumor out there. You just go to adrenalmass.org and it will, you know, everything I'm going to say in a minute is right there in front of you. You know, you can just refer to the point of care. There's patient handouts. There's, you know, scripts to be printed, just makes these things easy. But to dive into it, sir, when you see a patient with an adrenal mass, you got to make sure that that mass is not making excessive hormone. What are those hormones? Those are cortisol, as we said those are aldosterone and those are catecholamines. Okay. So I just have one script that I can click off in an Epic. I just have one sort of little, you know, lab order set and it, it's very easy. So to check for hypercortisolemia for cortisol production, you basically give the patients a script for one milligram of dexamethasone to take at 11 PM. Okay. And the next morning you check the cortisol. Cortisol should be less than five and by strict definitions should be less than 1.8. If it's less than 1.8, you really, that adrenal gland is completely sort of at the, uh, you know, under control of hypothalamic pituitary axis and that cortisol production gets suppressed. If it's greater than 1.8, this, you know, used to be called subclinical Cushing's now it's called autonomous cortisol production. And so there, those patients need follow-up and those patients are, are generally sent for endocrinology long-term follow-up. But that's not an, you know, having a cortisol, low-dose dexamethasone suppression test cortisol greater than 1.8, that's not an indication for surgery. Partner with your endocrinologist, they'll follow them. If they get sequelae of uh, hypercortisol production, that's maybe a consideration to remove it. But, you know, don't operate on these patients right off the bat. If, you know, if the cortisol is greater than five, that's really Cushing's and again, loop in your endocrinologist and work with them, but that's, you know, that's a harder indication for surgery. Then you got to check aldosterone hypersecretion. And so for aldosterone hypersecretion, you basically check your aldosterone level and you check your renin level. Now people talk about these aldosterone and renin ratios, aldosterone and renin ratio is really irrelevant unless your aldosterone is high and your plasma aldosterone should be greater than 15 nanograms per deciliter. And that's really diagnostic of hyperaldo. Okay. Now your renin 
should be suppressed. So your aldosterone to renin ratio is greater than 20. So if your renin is super high and your aldosterone is high, well, that's a different process. That's not for primary hyperaldosteronism. But if your renin is suppressed and your aldosterone is high, then that's very suspicious for hyperaldosterone. Again, con syndrome or hyperaldo is quite complex. There's a lot of conversations about necessity for adrenal vein sampling for confirmatory testing. That one really is important to partner with the endocrinologist because in a certain percentage of patients, and you know, literature sort of disagrees on what percentage of patients, but up to 30% of patients, if you take out that adrenal mass that you're seeing, you're actually going to still have hyperaldosteronism because of bilateral adrenal hyperplasia. So there, you know, there needs to be appropriate counseling, appropriate partnering with endocrinology, but this is a really important entity to treat because end organ damage in these hyperaldo patients is, is really sort of a concerning long-term sequelae, like renal failure, hypertension, strokes, all those kind of things. The, the hypertension in con syndrome is very, very damaging. However, this is very rare. This is on the order of 1% of adrenal masses that actually have hyperaldosteronism. Do you, I mean, I'm assuming you get a BMP and you're checking to make sure they're not hypokalemic at the same time. Is that right? You are, but that's, you know, there's lots of patients with hyperaldo who have normal potassium. So that's not something that, you know, you should, it's, it's sort of specific, but not, not, you know, and specificity is also argued, but it's, it's not, it's certainly not very sensitive. Gotcha. Okay. So quick recaps, um, one milligram dexamethasone suppression test. That's pretty straightforward. Less than 1.8, you're home free. 1.8 to 5 loop in your endocrinologist greater than five, you may have a possible issue. You got it. That cortisol and, you know, probably beyond that, you know, 20 or high dose dexamethasone suppression tests or 24 hour urine cortisol, that would be kind of what I would consider time to get your endocrinologist involved. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, I think it becomes very cumbersome to sort of send all of these to endocrinology because the patients don't follow up. It's sort of, you know, it's hard, you know, the endocrinologists are usually booked out. So to do these screening tests yourself, I think is, is sort of a huge deliverable to patients. Once you sort of hit a positive test, I think the, the, getting an endocrinologist involved is worthwhile. And I mean, unless you really have a deep interest in this, have a busy practice and, and, and really want to sort of do this all yourself, I think a lot of, you know, us in, in busy surgical practices really appreciate endocrinologist help to sort of make sure you follow these patients and work them up appropriately. Yeah. And then just for the next one, it's, it's straightforward, right? It's a, it's a renin and it's an aldosterone and that's kind of it. Yeah, and it's on the same blood draw as you got your cortisol on, right? Fantastic. Yeah, and then you and so just to speak a little bit to kind of a lot of times patients are on a lot of meds, right? And so do you need to stop them? Do you not need to stop them? So the general answer is you don't need to stop anything. I mean, you know, some of the sort of purists here who may disagree with me, but in reality, in a busy preclinical practice, you stop nothing. I mean, this piranolactone is really going to knock your result off. So don't test, you know for aldosterone and renin known spironolactone, but anything other than that, basically, you can test. And most of these things, most of the antihypertensives are only going to give you a false positive. If you get a positive, then you can send to endocrinology, they can start taking people off meds and testing and off meds. But generally, a screening test can be done on, on all the medications that people are on. Again, some purists may disagree, but in sort of the clinical trenches, that tends to work very well. And so let's talk about the last sort of set of tests that you need to run, and that's to make sure you're not seeing if, you know, you're not dealing with a pheochromocytoma. Now we're going to, I'm going to sort of do a little tangent here. 
there's a little bit of disagreement whether you need to test for pheochromocytoma in everybody because we're going to talk about imaging down the road. And if you have lipid rich lesions, pheochromocytomas are almost never lipid rich. So do you really need to test for catecholamine hypersecretion and lipid rich lesions? I generally do. It's a quick click and, uh, you know, it generally appeases everybody out there that you did the full workup. But, you know, again, if you're a purist, if it's a lipid rich lesion, it's an adenoma, that's adenoma is a cortical tumor. It does not produce uh, catecholamine. So you technically don't need to test for it. But how do you test for hypocatecholamine production? You basically get plasma free metanephrines. Again, that's on the same lab draw as you're drawing for cortisol, aldosterone, and renin, right? It's that morning blood draw. And why do you check metanephrines instead of catecholamines? Because catecholamine hypersecretion can be paroxysmal. In other words, it can rise, it can drop, and the catecholamines can be cleared from the system quite rapidly. Whereas metanephrines are basically catecholamines that are methylated and that have a much longer half-life in the body. And sort of metanephrine, think about it this way, is an integral over time of catecholamine level in the body. So it's, you're, it's a much more sensitive test. You know, there are some other tests that people get, but I generally just get plasma-free metanephrines, and that's a very good sensitive screening test for pheochromocytoma. You can get a 24-hour urine, but again, 24-hour urine is, is sort of a difficult test for the patients to get. So with two scripts, right? You get the dexamethasone script and you get the lab script. You get your whole workup. Yeah, I, I feel like sometimes it is all the other things, you know, the 24-hour urine catecholamines, it's the... 24-hour cortisols that confuse things. And I totally appreciate your approach. It's one medication, your dexamethasone, and then four lab tests. Yeah. Your cortisol, your aldosterone, your renin, and your uh, plasma metanephrine. So that's uh, going to be kind of it, right? From a lab perspective, you're, you're in. Yeah. And you go to, you know, again, I'll plug the website from, you know, it's this is this is not a website that's my website. This is the uh, Global Society of Rare Journey Urinary Tumors that, you know, have been uh, partnered with some very talented physicians to lead this effort. And uh, adrenalmass.org. Again, you forget any of this. You just remember that link. And when you see that patient, you can just print these scripts that I'm talking about and, and just get this done in your practice. As we kind of move forward, we've got our labs and now we're getting on to imaging. And this is another one where I think eyes can glaze over when you talk about washouts and in phase and out phase and absolute and relative and all of that. But let's just kind of just dive on into it and make this digestible just like you did for the, for the labs, Alex. So typically non-contrast CT scan or contrasted CT scan is what these patients are coming in with. Is that fair? That's right. So here's the thing to understand. And, you know, honestly, you know, I don't want to disparage sort of any colleagues, but sometimes radiologists sort of, sometimes the recommendation or radiology reports are not always helpful. So let's break this down. Basically all adrenal imaging pivots on assessment of intracellular lipid. Okay. If you have an intracellular lipid rich tumor, that's an adenoma. Okay. 70% of adenomas are lipid rich. All right. So if you have a non-con CT scan, which is kind of the workhorse for urologists for all the scans that we're getting for kidney stones, that's really a study that is very diagnostic in the vast majority of patients. So if you have a non-contrast CT scan, and you put your region of interest on that adrenal tumor and it's less than 10 Hounsfield units, you're done. You're done. That is an adenoma. Okay. Now it could be an adenoma that produces hormones that still needs a low dose dexamethasone suppression test, aldo and renin. And, you know, to, to sort of introduce another little nuance, if your patient is not hypertensive, the recommendation is not to check 
Aldo and Renan. Aldo and Renan can, needs to, it's so rare. Hyperaldo is so rare. You can you need to only check it in your hypertensive patients. Okay. If you have a lipid rich lesion is indicated by density of less than 10 Hounsfield units on a non-con scan, you have a diagnosis. That's an adenoma. It's not a carcinoma. It's not a pheo. It's not a metastasis. It's an adenoma. Okay. Now, if you have a post-contrast CT scan, so for instance, a trauma CT that was, or a CT scan that was done with contrast by medicine or general surgery, that cannot differentiate between lipid rich and lipid poor lesions. Okay. That is all the adrenal lesions there look exactly the same. All right. So now sometimes you have a non-con CT and it says adrenal mass and it says get MRI to better characterize. That I strongly disagree with those recommendations by radiologists because an MRI basically does the same thing that a non-contrast CT scan. It assesses the intracellular lipid content of an adrenal mass. So this in and out of phase that we talk about. So first of all, when you get an adrenal MRI, you don't need contrast. You basically need just an in and out of phase imaging. And what that does is it quantifies the amount of intracellular lipid. And there are, you know, debates in radiologic literature, whether a non-con CT is inferior or as good of it as an MRI, but basically those things are very similar. Okay. If you don't see a uh, signal dropout on in and out of phase imaging, you have a lipid poor lesion. Okay. And so there, that's when we go to, and that's could be still a 30% chance that that's still an adenoma, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have an adrenal lesion that's more than 10 Hounsfield units, or you don't have signal dropout in and out of phase MR, then you go to this study that you mentioned, which is called an adrenal washout study. Now to simplify things, an adrenal washout study is a CT urogram. Okay. <laughs> it, it, it's a CT urogram. That's basically the delays instead of being at 10 or 12 minutes, they're at 15 minutes. Right. That's all it is. Okay. So you have a pre-contrast, you have a one minute post-contrast and you have a delay, you have a 15 minute delay. And you basically, you know, you can go to lots of websites out there. You know, we have cancernomograms.com from Fox Chase that has an adrenal calculator and you plug in the density of Hounsfield units from the scans and you can calculate your washout. And depending on how you calculate it, absolute or relative, nobody's really determined which one is better. If it washes out a lot of the contrast, that's again, a surrogate for having a lot of intracellular lipid. Uh, and this intracellular lipid is indicative of an adenoma. Now, it's not as the test characteristics for a washout study are not as good as they are for a non-contrast CT or an MRI, which means if you have a lipid poor lesion, it can still be some other, and it washes out, it can still be some other things. Right. For instance, a renal cell or hepatocellular carcinoma metastasis can wash out and you have to be careful. And is that a vascularity phenomenon? Or is that still a lipid phenomenon, just out of curiosity? Or do we know? It's a great question. I personally don't know. I don't know. I don't think we know, but it's probably a bit of both, right? Yeah. So, th so that's great, Alex. And I think it does just kind of make it digestible, you know, non-contrast CT scan workhorse. If you don't get it there, an MRI may have some value added. And then probably if you're surveilling some of these where you're not totally home free, perhaps alternating some of the modalities might make sense. Is that part of your practice? Oh, absolutely. I mean, for instance, somebody comes in with a post-contrast CT scan and it's, it's basically a mass that's not characterized. Oh, well, they just got a CT scan. I'm going to get an MRI here, right? 
And what's important to know, there is no washout with MRI. You know, I, I didn't really sort of, as a resident, I didn't really understand this, you know, when I was sort of, oh, why can't I get an MRI washout? Well, your gadolinium-based imaging signal from that is not as dose-dependent as it is from iodinated in contrast. So basically, there is no such thing as an MRI washout study. Gotcha. So we talked about the presence or absence of intracellular fat and, you know, adenomas kind of being common things being common. But then the other things we, we look at, as you alluded to earlier, are of course, going to be size. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of the third variable here is you got metabolic activity, you got imaging characteristics, and then you got size. So there is a really great paper from the Cleveland Clinic in 2020 in Annals of Surgery that I think is worth sort of dissecting. And, you know, to kind of speak to this a little bit is, you know, the size criteria are really uh, there to make sure we're not sort of leading uh, adrenal cortical carcinomas in people, right? That the, basically the fact that adrenal cortical carcinomas exist drives a lot of the adrenal mass management, right? Now, when you really look at it and, you know, adrenal cortical carcinoma is in the United States, there's about 300 adrenal cortical carcinomas per year. So it's about a one in a million tumor. It's so, so, so rare. And just because this 300 people exist per year, it drives our management for, you know, thousands and thousands of people with adrenal masses. And, you know, I, I you know, some sort of, uh, you know, my talks, I have these case reports that I've published where, you know, you, you see, you know, I have this sort of case that I had early in my career where I saw on very close surveillance imaging of a patient with aggressive lung cancer, we saw an adrenal cortical carcinoma be born and I actually took her for an adrenalectomy because we thought this was a pet positive lesion in a you know, stage three lung cancer patient. And we basically saw it appear on Q3 month scans and we took this thing out and it was actually adrenal cortical carcinoma that was taking out as it was born. And this patient metastasized to her liver, you know, six months later, even despite the fact that we diagnosed it basically at inception, these are still just awful tumors. And, you know, it makes you wonder how justified this massive overtreatment of all these other patients is for the size criteria. Let's talk about sort of sizes. So I'm going to kind of just talk about this paper from the Cleveland Clinic, which I, I think is sort of really underscores what the size criteria are. So this was over 2,200 adrenal incidentalomas that were seen in the Cleveland Clinic over, you know, almost a 20-year period. About 17% of them went to adrenalectomy right up front, and the other ones were surveilled, and about, you know, another 7% eventually went, had an adrenalectomy. And so if you looked at what are the chances that you had an adrenal cortical carcinoma in a patient that had a tumor that was less than four centimeters? It was one in a thousand, 0.1%. In a patients with adrenal tumors that were between four and six centimeters, you had about two and a half percent, 2.4% of those had adrenal cortical carcinoma. So even up to six centimeters, it's very rare, less than two and a half percent chance of having adrenal cortical carcinomas. And if you looked at all tumors that went to adrenalectomy that were greater than six centimeters, there you hit about 20%. So in this paper, they concluded that optimal size cutoff for adrenal cortical carcinoma in adrenal incidentalomas is actually about 4.6 centimeters. That was kind of the recommendation for this. Once you're over 4.6 centimeters, your, your chances are high enough that you should probably really strongly consider resection. Now, like anything in clinical medicine, you sort of have to use your clinical judgment and 
you know, elderly, frail, comorbid patients, you know, you, some, a lot of the times there's a lot of value in leaving these things alone. Whereas even smaller tumors and much younger patients, you know, it may need to be addressed. Okay. So I think this really provides a nice framework. We look at, you know, basically is it lipid rich, lipid poor, and that's going to be our imaging. We look at size and do you take into account much borders, irregularities, cystic aspects and things like that? Or is that kind of just, you know, additional information, but not really the workhorse of the decision-making? So, I mean, it's certainly additional information, but don't be deceived. I mean, adrenal cortical carcinomas can have, you know, sort of very uh, deceivingly contained borders and, and look very sort of spherical and can be incredibly aggressive. Once you start sort of having this, these irregular borders, you sort of think about these desmoplastic metastases, like from lung cancer, though, those ones sort of start looking kind of irregular. Sometimes pheochromocytoma can be a little bit irregular, especially when they're small. The larger pheos tend to be really spherical. You know, what's also interesting is that this Hounsfield, basically, you know, from just to mention it from that, you know, large experience, there were basically no adrenal cortical carcinomas that were less than 10 Hounsfield units, zero. And only a handful, five in a thousand, wore 10 to 20 Hounsfield units. And all of your adrenal cortical carcinomas really wore greater than 20 Hounsfield units, which, which is important to remember. Now, these lipid poor lesions, these things that are greater than 10, greater than 20 Hounsfield units, they can be a pheo, they can be an adrenal cortical carcinoma, they can be a metastasis. On imaging, they're very difficult to differentiate. So we've got our imaging, we've got our lab work, your word, or maybe the clinical history is suggestive of a possible met. What are you using biopsies? Yeah, so biopsy, unlike, you know, in kidney cancer, Biopsy has to be deployed very carefully in adrenal tumors for a couple of reasons. One, biopsy is not able to differentiate between adrenal cortical carcinoma and an adenoma. There's not enough tissue. There's not enough tumor architecture to use the, these what's called waste criteria to really appropriately differentiate between adenoma and carcinoma. Also, the adrenal cortical carcinomas tend to really seed the needle track. So unlike renal cell, there's sort of at least believed to be much higher risk for needle track seeding. So if you suspect an adrenal cortical carcinoma, you really shouldn't be putting needles in it. Also, make sure you get your metabolic workup. You don't want to be putting a needle into a pheochromocytoma. Okay. Where a biopsy may be useful is when you are suspecting metastatic disease and where knowledge of metastatic disease is going to change management. And that's really a conversation with the oncology team from that primary site. You know, is this going to make a difference? Are you going to give them systemic therapy before I operate if we diagnose that this is, you know, say lung metastasis? I mean, that's the needs to be a conversation where it really is actionable information from a biopsy. Yeah. I mean, that's certainly the kind of message I've gotten over the course of my training and career is that you don't want to be kind of wily nylon when it comes to biopsy and adrenal gland and, and really just like you mentioned, it's to confirm a metastasis to the adrenal. So broadly, you know, for me, when I'm thinking about an adrenal mass, it's either an adenoma, a myolipoma, an ACC, a pheo, and then kind of the less common things, cysts, hemorrhage, and so on and so forth. I don't think we need to kind of extensively get into that. And then it's, is there a role for surgery or not? And in my mind, and, you know, by all means, I want to hear your perspectives on this, you know, pheos, ACCs, and then METs, when clinically indicated, are going to be kind of our workhorse indications. 
Is that accurate? Absolutely. Let's, let's mention myelolipoma. I think it's, it's sort of an important tumor and a big opportunity clinically. So myelolipoma, it's, you know, it's very different from an angiomyolipoma that we see in kidney cancer, right? Angiomyolipoma is blood vessels, muscle fibers, and fat, where this is myelolipoma. This is bone marrow and fat. This is really just bone marrow forming in the adrenal gland. There are fascinating sort of academically fascinating tumors. People have actually studied them and it looks like that bone marrow that's inside of this adrenal gland doesn't communicate with sort of systemic hematopoietic production, but it's basically bone marrow growing in the adrenal gland. How do you diagnose it? You diagnose is the same way that you diagnose a renal AML is macroscopic fat, less than, you know, 30 Hounsfield units on imaging. Now, you really, really, really should leave those patients alone. Even some of these larger tumors. I've operated on two in younger patients that were, you know, 15 and 20 centimeters, I believe. I mean, just really large ones where it's just really hard to walk away from a 45-year-old patient with a 20 centimeter mass and not take it out. And there, it's like an alien. You're basically taking out this bag of bone marrow. It looks incredible. But those patients can really be left alone. You know, I think there's, I've seen a few cases around the city where there's sort of a nasty sarcoma that mimics one of these. So I think repeat imaging at like a three month interval is worthwhile to make sure that these are stable. They tend to be very stable. You know, there's no real consensus on how often to surveil them. I'd still get a metabolic workup for those because there's a few case reports of them hiding a functional adenoma inside of them. They themselves, they don't produce hormones, but yeah, those things, I think that's a big opportunity to leave, really leave that patient alone, even with larger ones. But yes, I mean, this is, you know, adrenal masses is a very surgical disease and one of the most satisfying things you can ever do in clinical practice. I mean, especially these rare, you know, con syndrome patients where, you know, sometimes five, six, even up to 10, you know, antihypertensive medications and you do a 45 minute operation and they're off all their meds. It's incredible, really life-changing for patients. But uh, yeah, it's like with any surgery, it's sort of, uh, you know, decision is more important than incision. I mean, really, you got to pick your patients very carefully. Yeah, I like that. And I think on, on the opposite end of the spectrum, if you're not familiar with adrenal surgery, you know, some of the most hectic cases I've seen are ACC adrenalectomies, you know, with tumor thrombus, local invasion, et cetera. And I will absolutely kind of jump into that here in a moment. One quick question for staging, you know, if you're suspecting a MET, FIO, I think that the field has kind of moved from conventional CT scans to FDG to make B stands and now, now DOTA Can you just comment on that briefly, Alex? Yeah. So, I mean, if you have a solitary adrenal mass um, and it's at FIO, it's actually quite controversial whether you need to do any staging. It generally consensus is no, uh, you're just cross-sectional imaging is just fine. But if you have a paraganglioma, you have somebody who comes into you with, you know, say succinate dehydrogenase B family history, and you're, you know, there's maybe a, a little enlarged lymph node versus, you know, versus a paraganglioma, their PET imaging is very important. And now the go-to now is dotatate. If, you know, there's a classic paper from the NCI, I believe in 2012, where it shows that FDG PET is superior to MIBG imaging except for MEN1 patients and NF1 patients. But now it's been shown that the signal to noise and these PET scans is better with Dotatate tracer than the FDG tracer. And you know, that, those are not hard scans to get. Urologists kind of, sometimes you tell, mention Dotatate PET, they've never heard of it. Well, those scans are getting done by your carcinoid surgeons and your, your endocrine uh, sort of medical oncologist all the time. So any Senate can really get that scan and it's sort of a, a really good scan to get. But you know, when we're talking about a solitary adrenal mass, 
just your general CT or MR uh, cross-sectional imaging of the chest and abdomen is fine. Perfect. All right, great. So now finally we're at surgery, kind of the fun part of this, I suppose. But I like that, you know, decisions over incisions. So Fios, are you getting your endocrinologist involved to kind of get them optimized from a volume contraction and hypertension perspective? Yeah, I mean, the first several years of practice, I really did that all myself. It's very labor intensive. I mean, you got to call them every few days. You got to give them blood pressure cuff. You got to sort of, you know, get them to take their pulse and, you know, you get your alpha blockade on and then you you get your beta blockade if they get tachycardic. These days, it's uh, very difficult to get phenoxybenzamine. And so really all blockade is now with dexazosin over the last few years. And honestly, I've, I have such great endocrinology partners now at our center that I let them drive the bus on that. And, you know, as long as your anesthesia colleagues are experienced, almost any lack of appropriate blockade can be largely controlled intraoperatively. And, you know, if you know how to do these cases, if you really isolate your adrenal vein early and don't mash on these tumors too much, you generally uh, are sort of these things are quite uneventful. All right. So, you know, decision for surgery is made, you know, broad strokes, making decisions on minimally invasive versus open. What are the things kind of driving that decision for you? Yeah, I think it's an important conversation. I mean, I think especially as, you know, we do a lot of uh, uh, laparoscopic robotic surgery, we're sort of very confident that we can just do just about anything minimally invasively. There is a very strong argument for open surgery and masses greater than six centimeters when you're suspecting an ACC. I mean, you know, you have a big mass and it's a FIO, you know, metabolic improvement I'm very comfortable doing that laparoscopically. But if you have a big mass and it's sort of, you cannot rule out an adrenal cortical carcinoma, I actually make a Macucci incision these days, which I really, you know, I learned from my uh, liver surgery counterparts, a great incision. It's actually not quite, not very painful with a Thompson retractor. You know, that mass is really on a platter for you and you just take it out without, you know, sort of any spillage. I mean, spillage is absolutely deadly for those tumors. And the reason why these recommendations, I mean, they're guideline recommendations that are really, you know, there's some debate and there's debate amongst our division here, whether this, these data are really robust enough to make that strong of a recommendation, especially for experienced surgeons. But I, I just think an incision is such a non-event long-term that I do make incisions for these larger tours. And the reason why these recommendations were made is that in these tertiary referral centers, like the NCI, when patients were coming in for systemic therapy, when you looked at carcinomatosis, it was largely in patients who underwent minimally invasive surgery. And it was very rare to find carcinomatosis, that sort of mechanism of spread in patients who had open surgery. And so that's data from Michigan, data from NCI now at Columbia, those experts kind of moved to centers that really for tumors larger than six centimeters, where you suspect that adrenocortical carcinoma just make an incision. Yeah, I mean, in in the back of my head, I spent a lot of time thinking about testicular cancer. I just can kind of hear the folks from Indiana Memorial kind of confirming this type of thought process that minimally invasive surgery have abnormal patterns of metastases and so forth. But it's rare, right? It's a rare tumor. You got to get it perfect. Tumor spill, all that kind of stuff is massive. And this is maybe not in the scope of this discussion, but as more and more trainees get familiar with minimally invasive surgery, and they're excellent these days, you don't want somebody kind of goofing around and, you know, jumping into something that could be a catastrophe. Yeah, I've still kind of traditionally gone with Chevron incisions, mostly, you know, that's kind of my my workhorse for upper rector peritoneal stuff. Try Makuchi, you'll never look back. I've heard, I've heard, and I'm still a Bookwalter guy, but, you know, Omnis and Thompsons, I, those seem to be coming up more and more, and it kind of makes me wonder if I'm getting old. So 
Controlling the vein, that's critical, right? We're all kind of familiar with the anatomy on the right-hand side. It goes right into the in the cave on the left-hand side. Generally into the left renal vein, there can be um, parasitizing vessels. Are you typically doing these retroperitoneoscopic or transperitoneal for the ones that you're doing in MIS? I generally do the trans, but I certainly, you know, have a low threshold. I do a lot of retroperitoneoscopic partials, and so I'm very comfortable with it. I mean, the upper pole, sort of upper retroperitoneum, you got to sort of position your ports the right way and you can, it sometimes can be hard to reach up there. My biggest device, especially if using the SI, but on the X sides, it's also uh, very helpful is your lateral port on your retro. Make that a bariatric. It gives you a lot more, a little bit more angle around that hip, especially in, in sort of hippie patients. And uh, you, you can reach up there a lot better. Well, the problem with retro up there is that your assistant really is not much help there. They really can't uh, retract for you. They can't really reach up there very well and they can't put clips up there very well. So when you, you're doing all the clipping, like you're taking the vein, just use it, use the robotic clip applier. That that's sort of the, the big trick up there, but it's, I mean, it's a really nice case. It's, um, you know, you got to take your time and keep things dry because it's, it's a small space. And if, you know, if things get a little oozy, all of a sudden you lose visualization and your assistant is not really you know, that sucker up there is, is not as versatile as trans. So I'll do, I'll do things trans, but you know, if somebody has got a, um, hostile abdomen or it has a colostomy or anything like that. I mean, those are great cases where you just, you know, save people a big incision. Perfect. Love it. Yeah. I mean, for me, I typically do them trans. It's just what I've been more comfortable with. I, I think the retroperitoneal option is excellent. And some of the endocrine surgeries actually in my previous institution, they could like lop out an adrenal mass laparoscopically in like seven minutes. It was pretty impressive. And, and when I went down to Brazil, those guys are tremendous oh, yeah. uh, oh, laparoscopically. Yeah. Well, and I mean, just to speak to that at our center, I'd always tell my fellows, like, I'll try to do everything laparoscopically. They can do laparoscopically with the robot. Don't get me started, but how much healthcare dollars wasted on the robot, but that's probably a losing battle long-term. You know, everybody's so comfortable robotically that the lap skill set is dying art. Yeah, it's like sticks and uh, automatics. I, I drove a stick for 16 years, and then at some point, it's like, well, here we go. I think a Tesla sounds better. For sure. Well, th this is great. And it, you know, just kind of one last thing, Alex. So for patients that you're following, they're not kind of home free in terms of clearly benign, clearly small, clearly non-functional. Any interval annually, biannually, guidelines, gestalt, what are you, you kind of doing here? So... There is a little controversial and, you know, I, I sort of present this and some people give pushback around this, but I, that's how I practice. The 2016 European guidelines, I think are kind of the most thoughtful guidelines that are out there. And if the mass is less than four centimeters and lipid rich, there's no repeat imaging. And if you have a negative workup, then there's no repeat workup. And that's what I do. I think the, the risks of anything sort of I mean, you, you basically, otherwise you're making patients out of people that, that don't really have a problem. Now, if the imaging is a little bit indeterminate, the mass is a little bit larger, you know, your cortisol low, low dose dexamethasone suppression test is, you know, 2.5, not 1.8. Yeah, those people need, need follow-up. But I think there's sort of good data to show that a lot of these patients just work them up in the beginning and then they, they, they really don't need follow-up. Fantastic. Well, Alex, I've learned a wealth of information over the course of this chat and I really appreciate your, your knowledge. Any kind of, well, A, is there anything that you would like to mention that I didn't touch upon? And if not, which is inconceivable, any kind of parting thoughts for our listenership? Yeah. I mean, it's this, you know, again, I'll just sort of stress what I said in the beginning. I think it's hard to find a surgical specialist that is better positioned 
to take care of adrenal patients than urologists. Again, our surgical expertise, our physiological understanding, but also our comfort with active surveillance, with basically leaving patients alone and not having every patient be a nail when you have a hammer. Because I think I see that happening outside of urology all the time. Adrenal mass, three centimeters, it's out. And why? Why do we just do that? If you look at administrative data sets and look at adrenal adrenalectomy complications, they're on the order of 15, 20%, which is uh, unacceptable. So I, I think learn, learn this, adrenalmass.org, it's easy. And then, you know, obviously is, if it's a surgical case you're not comfortable with, there are plenty of folks who do this all the time, just refer. Yeah, no, I really appreciate you kind of demystifying adrenal masses in a very digestible way to make it a non-intimidating disease. It shouldn't be, but it can be. And then just sharing the tips and tricks. It's very obvious to me that you spend a lot of time thinking about this and it's wonderful to have thought leaders coming in from the urology side. Well, thanks again, Alex, for carving out some time. Uh, it was a real treat and hope to catch you down in uh, New Orleans. Perfect. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Ishan Sangwan and Medavi Patwardhan. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.